Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Being an identical twin is pretty cool. Just ask these five-year-olds. We look exactly the same. Like when her glasses are off, she looks the same as me at night. And when she does have her glasses on, she doesn't look like me. Meet Lucy and Layla. Plus, what if you didn't know you had an identical twin until you were 25 years old? And then a message popped up and it said something to the effect of, I was basically stalking you online and I saw that you look just like me and you it sounds like you're adopted and you were born in South Korea. I was too, my birthday's on November 19th, 1987. And how would you be different if, when you were a teenager many decades ago, your identical twin died? Everything had to be the biggest, the brightest, the best. I wanted to show people that I could live for two people. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Identical twins are amazing. I mean, for those of us who aren't an identical twin or triplet or quadruplet or more, imagine what that must be like. To see your face in someone else's face. Not just a similar jawline or, yeah, that's the family nose, but you have the same face. And maybe you have the same laugh. Maybe you have the same look on your face when you check your hair in the mirror. You know, with that same eyebrow up. And maybe sometimes, just sometimes, you read each other's minds. Later in the show, you'll hear a difficult story, the kind of story all twins fear experiencing, what it's like surviving the death of an identical twin. And, you know, I've always wondered what it would be like if I found out that I had a long-lost twin somehow separated at birth. And for my mom listening at home, hi, mom. I know, I know it's impossible, but what if you were adopted and at the age of 25, you find out that this whole time, your identical twin was just a continent away. Today, you'll meet a pair of identical twins who went through exactly that. But first, meet Lucy and Layla Castingway. They're seven and a half years old now, but they were five when I interviewed them at their home in Bristol back in 2019. I asked them how they describe themselves. We look exactly a like when her glasses are off, she looks the same as me at night. And when she does have her glasses on, she doesn't look like me. That she has glasses and I don't. When I take my glasses off, people might tell us apart. But if a stranger talks to us, if they don't know our names, we shouldn't talk to them because they're not our family. That's what my mom says. Like if we meet somebody in the driveway and he said, him or her says, come on, want to play with me? And we would just run inside. Right? Yeah. Do you ever have the same dreams? Um, sometimes. What did you dream about once, Layla? I dreamed about riding a princess shark. I, I dreamed about riding a princess shark, too. 
How do you correct people when they say the wrong name? Tell people the name. So if I was like, hey, Layla, what would you say? Hey, my name's not Layla. My name's Lucy. My name's Layla. What if I said, hey, Lucy, what would you say? I am not Lucy, you silly goose. My name is Layla. Do you have the same toes? My nails are really sharp. Are yours? No, no, not really. But do your feet look the same? They do. It looks like you are Layla. Because you have the same feet as me, but you're Lucy, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> Silly me. Ow, 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 ow. Sometimes, when you're identical twins, you can play tricks on people. One time when in the morning at Meme's house, we were sleeping over, and I said, Hi, Meme, my name's Layla. And my sister says, Hi, my name is Lucy. <laughs> That's a trick, right? And then Meme says, Wait, you're Layla, you're Lucy. Hey, I was just kidding. I'm just kidding. You big goofball. What's your favorite ice cream? Strawberry. What's your favorite ice cream? Uh, strawberry. If I asked you separately what your favorite ice cream was, do you think you'd say the same thing? Mm, yes. Maybe. Because everything is delicious. And yeah. We might like the same thing we did it to both really yummy. Man, my armpit's itchy. Today we did. Uh -huh, we, we went, went to Hawaii. You just said the same thing at the same time. Oh my god. Okay, okay. I didn't put this out of the way to all yet. You did it, girls. You made it on the radio. Thank you so much to Lucy and Layla of Bristol, Connecticut, and to their parents, Heather and Roger Castingway. Fun fact, Heather grew up obsessed with identical twins and married Roger, who's an identical twin, and then they somehow made a pair of identical twins. Pretty cool. When you're 25 years old, you're old enough to really start getting a firm grasp on who you are as a human being navigating this chaotic, funny, unfair, beautiful, painful, surprising existence. You know your quirks, you know your preferences, you know yourself. And there's only one you on this whole planet. And that's true no matter what, there is only one you. But what if you were adopted? And one day, a friend request pops up on Facebook from someone with a totally different name, living in a totally different country, but with the same face same country of origin, who was also adopted, who has the same birthday. That's the beginning of the story of a lifetime for Samantha Futterman of Los Angeles, California, and Anaïs Bordier of Paris, France. They're featured in the documentary Twinsters, which Sam produced, and it starts with that most consequential friend request. It's 2013, and when Sam sees that friend request... She's all, this is weird, but it, it didn't seem real at first. And then I was like, but this girl looks just like me. This is so bizarre. So 
I clicked on her friend request. I accepted her friend request. And then a message popped up and it said something to the effect of, hi, my name is Anise Bordier. I'm French. I live in London. I was basically stalking you online. And I saw that uh, you look just like me. And you sa- it sounds like you're adopted and you were born in South Korea. I was too. My birthday's on November 19th, 1987. And then she made a parent trap joke at the end. So I was like, she's kind of cool, right? (laughs) So she makes a parent trap joke and was just like, let me know what you think. (laughs) And Anais, will you back me up a little bit and talk about how Sam came to your attention? I was just in London shopping for some fabrics uh, for school, for university. And then a message popped up on my Facebook wall saying, oh, you have a doppelganger in the U.S., So I started watching the video and my friend obviously sort of forgot that I was adopted. So he, he allowed himself to make that joke and I don't know how he forgot I was adopted. (laughs) Um, And he made that joke. And then we realized, I mean, looking at the video, I had never seen someone look so similar. I mean, people say, Oh, you remind me of this person, this person, but this time it was really different. I could feel it. it still gives me shivers. It was insane. And then I was looking for more information about this girl and I couldn't find any. So it was not before two months, one or two months later that the same friend said, by the way, I just saw the girl again in a trailer. So, and this time I thought, okay, trailer means a casting list means I can find her probably. <laughs> so I just, go- I wasn't listening to him on the bus. I was, he was just chatting <laughs> and I was Googling her name and managed to find it and then find all her information. And slowly and slowly, all my friends started investigating the internet, <laughs> trying to find social media, trying to find <laughs> more information about this girl. And this this is how it all suddenly appeared that we were born the same day. Uh, she had a very American name. Maybe she was adopted and then found out that she was actually adopted. She went to Korea, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> At this point, you're wondering, like, is this my identical twin sister? Did you did you want to believe it? Like, how did you feel, either of you, how did either of you feel about the possibility of what you might be stepping into? I feel like it was too exciting and wild. And I was a little naive at the time. So I think I was too excited to think of all the difficult possibilities as well. I did the negative parts that, or like the potentially as an adoptee difficult parts of what this journey was about to be was not anywhere near my brain. And again, you know, I was excited and naive and, and just kind of jumped in and was like, I think I sent you my birth records. I didn't even say hi. Hi, my name is Sam. Yes, thank you for your message. You know, I just sent a copy of my birth records that I had on my phone from a trip a few months prior. And then Ani, she was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm I'm going home this weekend. I'm I'm going to send you um, some photos and stuff like that. I'm going to talk to my mom. Okay, bye. And then we're like, yeah, we're totally twins. And, you know, and then we just went on about this really emotional, wild journey that we hadn't really given too much depth of thought to yet. <laughs> what about you, Annie? Same sort of feelings? Was it just, let's just go, let's figure it out as we go? Yes. The the first, when I saw her date of birth and everything, I was thinking, because it was such a wild idea, I was thinking, 
what my parents would usually say, oh, you're crazy. So <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, I'm possibly crazy. So the first thing I did, I jumped out of the bus and I called my mom. And the first thing that my mom said was, oh, my God, do you think she could be your identical twin sister? And then because she said that, I was suddenly... Only 15 minutes happened between the time I found out her name and her information in my mom. But I guess I doubted for 15 minutes. And then I was allowed to finally believe that we might have been identical twin sisters. And yes, I mean, Sam did. Uh, she did take at least one week to answer, which was pretty long. But she sent me her birth records and it wasn't weird. I mean, it's definitely the weirdest thing to send a person you have never met and sent you a message on social media. But I was so excited. I was thinking, oh, my God, yeah, you were totally twins. I'm going to send you everything. Just crazy people. You both traveled to meet each other. And there's this moment in the documentary where Sam is waiting for Anais. <laughs> and then you're just, you know, you're, you could tell you're anxious, understandably. And all, you know, all each of your friends, everybody's there filming you and watching you. And you were saying you feel like you're a, an animal in a zoo. Looking back now, you know, you'd been Skyping and talking just constantly leading up to this. But as you know, like, there's nothing quite like meeting for the first time in person. And I, I just want to hear like, what did that feel like to see each other in the flesh, in real life? How was it looking back now? It was amazing. I mean, even now, it seems so crazy that it happened. But in, in reality, when we were there, it was so awkward. For about, I would say, what, what 45 minutes, right? Yeah. It was, we were like pacing like, cats or something for 45 minutes but also you know everyone was staring at us so there was a pressure to like do something or like we're supposed to hug but we don't we always fight that feeling you know so it, it was weird and then finally after about 45 minutes later when we we're on our way to lunch everyone kind of realized I think and turned their attention away from us and we got to kind of just focus on each other and walk side by side and see our reflections in the window together. And that was weird. And, and we got to just be with just each other, even in, in a group of people. And that was our binding moment, I think. We were really like two magnets attracted and then repulsed to each other. It was really strange. Everyone was looking at us and I guess expected that we would hug and cry. And we weren't. It's just weird <laughs> to be in the same place. <laughs> no, and it's a stranger, even though we had talked before. So it was really awkward. <laughs> you take DNA tests and they come out true. You are identical twins. There's no doubt. Are there words for what that felt like? And did it change anything? I think, I don't know, uh, it definitely solidified it, having that DNA test, having that, I don't know, scientific confirmation that everything that we hoped, dreamed, and already believed was true. We, that's totally what I felt too when we received the DNA test. It felt like the world, I don't know, I had, I guess you imagine being on a path in life and then all of a sudden it opens so many new things around you and you feel like I mean I felt like everything was possible 
But yeah, when we got the DNA results, which was, I mean, it would have been even wilder to know that we weren't actually identical twins. So <laughs> it wasn't a surprise because this would have been even crazier, but, but we knew. <laughs> As I'm watching the documentary, I'm thinking, God, like, this feels like a love, well, I know it's a love relationship, but it feels like you found your spouse. I know that's not exactly right, but there's so, in my mononormative mind, I was thinking about <laughs> how, how much the, you know, when you first were communicating and texting, it was like new relationship energy, right? It was just like, it was like you found, you found your person and you did like do you do you find that your feelings about what you've been through and for each other now really do in many ways mirror how we see a marriage yeah we the first time we met on skype felt like a blind date (laughs) (laughs) i guess it's completely true it went well. We, we we talked for three hours, so it was a really good blind date. <laughs> <laughs> Although the opposite of blind date, since you know exactly what each other looks like. But yeah, yeah, I mean... That's true. It'd be like the most trippy, bizarre, dystopian blind date ever. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, as you're laughing, I remember one of the first things I noticed is that you have the same laugh. Oh, yes. That's so weird. It's very, it's a very loud laugh. Yeah, <laughs> like it's super creepy. Yeah, everyone's like, "Oh, that's if she is your identical twin sister, something she won't have is your laughter because it's very unique." And I was like, "Oh, yeah." <laughs> yeah, like when you were first waiting, when you were first going to meet each other, and you were, you know, Sam, you were sort of just anxiously waiting. You could hear Anais laugh through the door. <laughs> I'm like, she's hearing her laughter through the door. <laughs> terrifying, that's really terrifying. That's like the perfect <laughs> setup for a bizarre horror film. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. When we get back. You just remind yourself that this happened and it's amazing to know. Just still gives me shivers and I still want to cry sometimes about it. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. Hear about what effect this has all had on Sam and Anais. Plus, everything had to be the biggest, the brightest, the best. I wanted to show people that I could live for two people. What it's like when your identical twin dies at 16 years old. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, stories about being identical twins. Later in this segment, you'll hear about life as an identical twin after your twin has died. But right now we're back with Sam Futterman and Anais Bordier. They were born in Korea and separated at birth. Sam was adopted to a family in America and Anais to a family in France. They found each other when a friend of Anais happened upon a video of Sam, who's an actress. Anais found Sam on Facebook, and at 25 years old, they reunited. And the DNA test confirmed they are identical twins. This does, of course, bring up some really intriguing questions. Like, after these eight years since they met, how much do they think DNA has to do with who they are, and how much of it are the different worlds they grew up in? 
it definitely feels like we're in the same, we're built of the same skeleton or architecture. But then I guess, yeah, the, um, yeah, just like a house, we have the same architecture. So I guess we, you wouldn't be able, you might be able to move <laughs> the kitchen instead of the bathroom. You might be able to do it, but then you would have to rewire everything. So I guess it's about the same. We have the same architecture, but then, I mean, we, you wouldn't be able to bring a whole garden <laughs> inside your house or I build something different so we are very similar in DNA for me I was really surprised I didn't think DNA would have such a big impact on the way even in your emotions or everything but then we could see the impact of uh, your environment on you and uh, for instance the the difference that we have is my emotional response to stress is a lot higher than Sam's and it's definitely linked I guess to what happened in my life younger and just the stress I've been facing at school or anything and with other children and I guess uh, that's the difference so I say we're both the same uh, we we might have the same stress triggers uh, but then my emotional response is just huge <laughs> we still have breakdowns sometimes but <laughs> but yeah yeah I guess it's different things so the thing that catches my gut about your situation is that you spent the first 25 years of your lives not knowing each other existed and I I know you'd, you'd mentioned feelings of loneliness which could or could not have had anything to do with you know this sort of cosmic knowing that there was this other person out there but now you've got this secure, special, lifelong, as you've said, unconditional love and unexplainable connection with someone, this like amazing gift in a world full of chaos and injustice and isolation. You have this anchor that just appeared in your life at 25. And because you've had a before and now eight years after, I just want to hear what this has done for you, how this has, how this has changed you. What has this done for you? <laughs> I guess it's just, I don't know, full happiness. It's just so many happy things. I don't know. Just, yes, it's just this. It's insane. I mean, I'm a lot more, I guess I'm a lot, happier I mean I was happy but I'm a lot happier I'm less uh, anxious about things I think it really cold me down <laughs> a lot and I'm so thankful I'm so grateful and thankful for whoever or whatever might be behind this but <laughs> yes I mean it's amazing sometimes you could just you just remind yourself that this happened and it's amazing to know it just still gives me shivers and I still want to cry sometimes about it. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. <laughs> what do you think, Sam? Yeah, I, I mean, the same is just, it's a reminder that no matter where we are at whatever point in our lives, that something amazing can still happen. Because I think as we get older, sometimes it can feel as though your time is running thin or that all the exciting things have happened already. But I really love that this has opened my mind to always having a door open to something incredible happening. And even for us, sometimes it's like, oh, was that the thing? Like, 
is everything downhill from us meeting because it was so amazing, you know, but we don't believe that. I think we really believe that anything or everything is so possible. I think Sam also, um, because yeah, being an, an adoptee, I guess you have to go, I think this is normal, but I think you go through different psychological stages, <laughs> acknowledging by your adoption. So first is probably feeling rejected and then comes the anger. And I guess I didn't get past, um, I mean, I was totally fine. My parents, it was not even the subject, but I don't remember talking about adoption or anything, but I always thought that I felt more the being rejected and loneliness instead of uh, being, feeling loved and meeting Sam and seeing her different. I think she opened, definitely opened my eyes when we were in Korea, uh, meeting our foster moms. And I felt, I suddenly understood that it was an actual, an actual act of love. And that's, I guess it's reconciliated me with the, with this definitely. So I guess Sam really helped me go further in my emotional stages um and yes adoption is all about love from um before and for after so it's it's amazing <laughs> yeah i think and vice versa as well uh Anis had dealt with more of the feelings of being abandoned and loneliness and i never felt that as a child or a young adult um and i wasn't even necessarily super cognizant of the fact that a lot of adoptees did feel that way. I think I knew I had, I had friends that maybe said that they didn't have a great adoption, but it, it, in my mind, I didn't know how deep and kind of dark that feeling could be. And um, until now, until being an adult, I think those feelings have kind of taken away from me a little bit. And, and, and um I guess I finally understand the the difficulty and complexity of of being a transracial adoptee and transnational adoptee. And it's really started to sit with me. And Anis, I think, is always great about she's like, yeah, that that's how I felt for a long time. And and I'm seeing the other side of it now. And then for me, it's like I Anis and I are both here, right? We're on, we're on the same level. But maybe we both started differently. Like if, if I was down here, Anis has brought me up to this way or if she was up here and then she's been able to like grow roots down to me in a way. It's like we've, we're both growing in a different way, but, but still together and kind of filling in our book with color, if that makes sense. But yeah, how, how we come about it may be different and sometimes opposite, but with each other, we're just learning so much more about ourselves and about, I think, and other people. Um, Well, I've asked everything. I mean, we could talk for hours, but other than that, I've asked everything I planned on. Is there any big feeling or takeaway or thing that surprised you or anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to say? This is nice because it's fun for us to reminisce because we don't get to do this and talk about how wonderful and lucky we are all the time. So it's, um, oh no, thank you. Because it's kind of given us power to spend with each other. <laughs> well, Anais Fortier, Sam Futterman, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> 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 
You can watch their whole story online by checking out their documentary, Twinsters. We'll have a link to it on our website, ctpublic.org slash audacious. I don't like, I don't think anyone likes to think about someone I love dying, especially not a sibling. I have three big brothers, all of us born in the span of six years. Sorry, Mom. The bond I share with them is powerful. I mean, we came from the same place. Thanks, Mom. We experienced the world together, and growing up, we understood the context of all of our characters. And there is a lot of character in our family, if that wasn't evident by, well, me. When I do begin to wrap my head around the fact that one of us will outlive the rest of us, my brain and my heart can't comprehend what that particular kind of loss, that sibling loss, would do to me, how it would form me. Now, what if it was my identical twin who died? That's unfathomable in a lot of senses, but not for Larry Wilson. Larry Wilson's twin brother, Ronnie, died by accidental drowning at 16 years old, which led Larry, much later in life, to become a facilitator for Twinless Twins International. They're a resource for bringing people like him together to talk about their pain and feel just a little bit less alone. I asked Larry to bring me back to that last day of Ronnie's life. What happened? Oh, well, Ronnie and I went swimming on August 1st, 1967, when we were 16 years old. And I had had my driver's license for four days. And we uh, descend from a runaway slave boy who stowed away on a clipper ship. And the sea captain brought him from Charleston, South Carolina in the days of slavery to freedom in Mystic, Connecticut. And when he grew up, he married a Pequot Indian. And so I'm part Pequot, part Native American. I consider myself a black Indian. And on the Indian reservation in North Stonington, Connecticut is a lake called Long Pond. And that's where Ronnie and I decided to go swimming that day. We swam from an unanchored boat. One foolish mistake after another led to Ronnie's being transitioned to the other side. And that was 54 years ago. I remember that day uh, as clearly as I, as though it had happened yesterday. What was he like? Ronnie was four minutes younger than me. When we were born, I weighed eight pounds, 10 ounces. My mother, I mean, my brother weighed eight pounds. So 16 pounds, 10 ounces. And this little lady called mom, little Elsie Wilson. And Ronnie viewed me as his older brother. Even though it was only four minutes, I was the one that tended to make the decisions for the two of us. And he would say, what should we do? Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Except the interesting thing was that that day, it was my idea to go swimming, but I didn't want him to go. I didn't want him to go. And we physically fought about it. And he wasn't listening to me that day and wanted to go. And when we got there and we were swimming from this unanchored boat, I had directed him to, to stay in the boat until our other friend came back with an inner tube 
that could present safety to Ronnie when he was in the water. But instead of waiting for that inner tube to come back and Ronnie taking his turn and he just jumped in without it. So it's interesting how he would, for the most part, listen to me all the time in terms of decisions, but he wasn't listening at all that day. And maybe that's an indication that it was his time to go, I don't know. But because it was my idea to go swimming, I blamed myself for 54 years. And just like other twinless twins, we cope in different ways. Do you know how I coped? How'd you cope? I overachieved. Everything had to be the biggest, the brightest, the best. I wanted to show people that I could live for two people. And as importantly, or even more importantly, I wanted to satisfy that survivor's guilt that I felt. You know, why him, not me? We came into the world together. Why aren't we leaving the world together? I want to give you a quick aside about that day. What sticks out in my mind, too, is just how wonderful my parents were. My father, he had his flaws. We all have flaws. I mean, I, as a father now, I follow in his footsteps with, with some of the flaws he had. But I think we do the best we can. But by golly, that day, he absolutely did and said the right thing. I'll get emotional telling you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So when Ronnie drowned, we couldn't find him right away because we had, he, I had tried to save him and I didn't know what I was doing and kicked up a bunch of mud at the, in, the, in the water. We weren't in very deep water, but you don't have to be in very deep water to drown. So it was muddy and we couldn't really see and a state police came. And so I was out of the water waiting for my father because they contacted my parents and waiting for my father to pull up to the lake in his 1961 Buick. I was nervous. I was scared. I, I was worried that I would be blamed for it. I thought I would be blamed for it. And around the corner, eventually, so waiting for my father was just was was it seemed like a, a, an infinite amount of time before that Buick came around the corner. He parked. He got out to the car and he said, "Where's your brother?" And I said, "They they haven't found him." And that's when my father knew that Ronnie was gone. I could see my father well up, and I said. Daddy, do you blame me? Now, the answer to that question, that one specific question, dictated the rest of my life. And he got down on his knees and he held me and he said, no, I don't. No one ever will, and don't ever wonder about that again. 
we're just grateful that we didn't lose the two of you. It gave me a sense of belonging, a sense of a strong sense of love, and a sense of hope that I could get through all of this. So that was the day. Now you have to just hold on a second. I have designer Kleenexes for my designer office. All right. I. It makes sense that after everything happened, you know, there's the immediate aftermath. There's your life, you know, a decade later, three decades later, five. How did how you dealt with this change over these decades? What was the evolution of that? Well, at that time, the minister who became, he wasn't a mentor then, but he, had be, he became my mentor, said at the funeral, well, now, Larry, you need to live for two people. That really became what I wanted to do. Now, the thing about living for two people, though, is there's enormous pressure to always excel. So as I grew older, it was the best education, leading to the best jobs, leading to the best assets, leading to the biggest house and the best cars and the, all this stuff. As you try to prove to others that you're worthy of being here. But you're really trying to prove that more to myself. Others weren't thinking that. After the break. I do think that the loneliness that I feel stems from the hole in my heart and the hole in my brain that will remain there until God calls me home and I'm standing next to my brother. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about identical twins, and we're getting back to my conversation with Larry Wilson. He's 70 years old now, but when he was 16, he and his brother Ronnie went swimming. Ronnie died by accidental drowning that day. And all these 54 years since, Larry has faced the world feeling alone in a way that most of us will never feel. Like he has to do more with his life because... He says he's living for two. I asked him, over all these decades, did he feel like Ronnie was gone and he was totally alone, or does he feel like Ronnie is still with him? I feel closer to him now than I may have back in those days. You see, back in those days, I was feeling such a sense of guilt. You know, it was my idea to go swimming. So I think there was a need for me to feel that I was making up for him and that he was there, he was with me, but he was mad at me. I lived with that, Kyone. I lived with that for most of my life, that Ronnie was mad at me. 
And others would say, oh, of course, he's not mad at you. And you've got faith and, you know, he's with God and he's, you know, well, they could say all those things, but they weren't living my life. I must tell you also that there was this profound sense of guilt. But the other thing is that I was hurting because we were identical twins. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about twinless twins and sibling loss. I personally feel there are three degrees of sibling loss. There's the loss of a brother or sister that you're not twins with and the pain that goes with that. Then there's the loss of a fraternal twin. It's unique. You shared the womb together. You grew together. You matured together. And you finally came out of the womb together. But then there's the identical twin loss. You're sharing the same spirit. You're, you're sharing some of the, the same physical attributes. Um, you're sharing the way you think, the way you prioritize, the values that you have. Identical twin loss is the most severe. I am not, and I'm, to my brethren out there and, and sisters that are, have lost their twins, I am not minimizing the pain that paternal twins feel. But there, there is a more profound kind of dimension, if you will, an added dimension of being an identical twin. So in those early days, I was, I was feeling that sense of guilt, that sense of loss, and that terrible sense of void, of emptiness. So even to today, you know, when people say they get lonely, you can be an only child and be lonely. You can, be a, you can have siblings and be lonely. You, can, you could be the life of a party and still be lonely. But I do think that the loneliness that I feel stems from the hole in my heart and the hole in my brain that will remain there until God calls me home and I'm standing in that place where there is no sunset and there is no dawn and standing next to my brother. Until that happens, those holes are there. I'd like to hear you talk about how it probably wasn't a straight line from being 16 and beginning the grieving process to where you are now. What were some of the zigzags in the way that you coped with this and that you started forming yourself around this? I lived through my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, overachieving. But it was exhausting. And so what do you do when you feel this need to achieve? You're on this track where people come to expect it. Well, then you start dabbling with the dark side of life. And the reason that I think I was attracted to some of that alcohol and to some extent drugs was because it relieved the burden. It got rid of the fatigue that comes with overachieving. But then the pedal falls off the road. And all of a sudden, the addiction becomes no longer pleasant, but you're sort of like chasing the devil. And when it came time to give those things up, alcohol and drugs, well, the drugs went, I gave them up first, but it was much harder than I thought it would be. And now finally, the alcohol, I'm proud to say that yesterday, 
was my 25th month of sobriety. I live better now than I've, than I've ever lived before. I am more honest. I am more compassionate. I am more empathetic. I'm more humble. Have you noticed my, my humility? I'm sure you have. <laughs> the most humble ever, ever. <laughs> it's fine if I tell you that. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm a better person as a result of it. Thank you for telling me about all that. Um, and congratulations on your sobriety. Um, you also help people in the Twinless Twins community, which has been around since 1987. It, it connects people who are in situations similar to yours. It offers counseling and solidarity and support for people who've lost their twin, regardless of if they lost their twin two weeks ago or when they were a child. Why did you decide to become involved with Twinless Twins? And what kind of things do you most often hear? Like, what are some patterns in, in these conversations you have? I remember I wanted to convince myself as I was convincing other people that life had gone on, that Ronnie was a part of it, but really a part of, in a physical sense, a part of the past. And now he was just privately with me. Well, I continued to struggle on and the fatigue got to be more and more. And I just realized that the road I was on was not sustainable. So I had a job. I remember specifically where I was working. I was, I was head of marketing and development for uh, the brand new uh, Mashantucket Pequot Native American Museum. It had just opened and I received in the mail an invitation to come to a Twinless Twins meeting. And Kion, I didn't throw the invitation away, but I didn't act on it. It sat on the corner of my desk for over a year, but I didn't throw it away. How do they know to send it to you? Some of this stuff you see is a God thing. They got my name from somewhere, but they clearly reached out to me. I didn't reach out to them, but I, I didn't have the strength to throw that away. And uh, I went to Boston. I decided I was going to go to Boston. It was a dinner meeting. I got to the restaurant and I was afraid to go in. And I remember, I remember standing outside the door of this private room, tears streaming down my face. I was afraid to go in because I was afraid to admit that I was vulnerable. I was afraid to admit that my life wasn't sustainable without my brother, the way I was trying to cope with it. And they helped. They helped me. And I will always love them for it. And now I can talk about, you know, I can, I can say that I'm the muckety-muck, one of the muckety-mucks that, you know, does the facilitation of the meetings today. What do you get out of those meetings? The sense of, of, of helping people, because I can help them avoid some of the mistakes that I made, and I can encourage them to go ahead and make some other mistakes that maybe I didn't make, because it's a combination of doing things right and doing them well, and combined with doing things not so right. It's an ongoing struggle, but it does start with finding a strategy that is sustainable. And there's no question 
that Twinless Twins International is a part of that strategy. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was your relationship with God. You've mentioned your faith uh, a few times in this interview, and um, when you talk with God, when you hear God, when you consult with God about this, what do you hear that you need to hear? God is with me each and every day in my rising up and in my lying down and in my coming in and my going out, in my labor and in my leisure and in my laughter and most of all in my tears until I come to the day where I stand in that place where there is no sunset and there is no dawning and I'm standing there proudly next to my twin, Ronald Henry Wilson. That's the day I'll live for. Larry Wilson, thank you so much. Thank you. You can find more information at twinlesstwins.org. You can find Larry's work as the owner of the Wilson Organization. They specialize in diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-bias consulting. Check them out at wilsonorganization.com. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin-De Martinez, Kelly Langevin, Maisie Carvalho, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like profiles of people who have an ultra-rare condition where they're able to remember almost every day of their lives as if it were yesterday, and what it was like for a brother and sister to find out that they're half-siblings, and that the man who raised them isn't the biological father of either of them, and other stories of lives being uprooted by direct-to-consumer DNA tests. Hear them all at ctpublic.org audacious, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for leaving that review on the show on Apple Podcasts, because that really helps people find us. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>